0: Welcome to Street Talk, S&P Global Market Intelligence podcast that offers listeners a deep dive into issues facing financial institutions and the investment community. Hi, I'm Nathan Stovall, Senior Research Analyst at S&P Global Market Intelligence, and you're listening to Street Talk. Today we're talking with Chip McDonald, a partner at Jones Day works with banks on a variety of different matters, including M&A and capital raising activity and regulatory issues. And the last bit is what we're going to focus on uh, with our chat with Chip today, talking about potential changes to the regulatory environment and, and how banks should be preparing. Thanks for joining us, Chip. Well, you know, Chip, we we... Cover a lot of of a lot of the talk about potential changes to to the regulatory environment and and the potential changes in regulatory wins you know we've seen the House pass the choice act which would would call for pretty significant regulatory overhaul. The treasury's come out with a number of its own recommended reforms, but you know one of the fundamental questions that that I have for somebody you know in your chair is now, if I'm a banker, what should I be doing at this point? Um, you know, right now it's a lot of talk. should Should I prepare? How can I prepare? You know, what, what are you recommending with clients?
1: That, that's a, a great question. I think we're seeing a little bit of the pendulum swinging back towards the middle from when Dodd Frank was passed in 2010. It took two years to pass Dodd Frank after the, the credit crisis began, maybe a little more than two years, and It has become somewhat of a sacred cow in that you say, gosh, if we change Dodd-Frank, some people react and say, we can't do that, it's dangerous. I think the more, the better approach is to consider if it's working well, if it could work better, and what goals you have in changing it. And I think some of the core principles that have been announced, you know, in both Congress and the Henserling Bill, the Choice Act, in the Treasury Report, and in the executive orders, are hard to argue with you know it's fostering growth and opportunity, allow consumers to make informed decisions, tailor regulation to complexity and risk and and allow the United States financial system to be competitive globally. so those are all good things. How long is that going to take to implement well, the Choice Act has been passed, but there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of appetite for it in the Senate at this point. Um, I think the a lot of this could be done by regulatory action in terms of interpretation and the like. I think you're seeing some some early signs of it. I think that you're seeing applications for M&A uh, activity being processed faster. You're seeing some streamlining of it. The Fed recently reduced the or increased the size of uh, bank mergers that would require responses to their systemically important questions. Um, I think you've also seen some call report, you know, streamlining to reflect uh, cost to smaller institutions, and you're seeing over the last week or so some relief on on Volcker in terms of interpretive guidance on seeding funds and um, foreign funds and the like that have been sort of languishing since the regs were adopted a, a few years ago. So. We're seeing a little bit of green shoots, if you will, but maybe even more importantly, a regulatory attitude that um, recalibrating Dodd Frank and the interpretations under it are appropriate given where the banking system is today. Now, on the legislation, it's very, very hard to predict, Tommy.
0: Right. Yeah, and the one thing you know, we always hear is is uh, uh, years, if not you know not months, uh, and certainly not weeks, in terms of the legislative. Environment And you know, what you're talking about, though, is a number of incremental changes. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that, that I feel like could be possible is, you know, folks would say that they call Dodd-Frank death by a thousand cuts because it was a lot of small things, some bigger, obviously, capital changes, liquidity changes, particularly for the big guys. But, you know, could we see sort of the same thing, where you get enough of these incremental changes, they eventually add up. And, and really make a, a big impact on the way uh, banks operate? I,
1: I think you could. I, I think, you know, you you could see, you, you've got a couple of other things out there that ought to be thought about, and one is cybersecurity, one is OFAC and terrorism, as well as AML, BSA. and those aren't going to go away. In fact, even today, the Secretary of the Treasury was reiterating some concerns about those items, so I think the, the things that you could see are, you know, like maybe relief for small uh, banks, uh, community-sized banks, which the Treasury report defines as banks up to 10 billion in assets. Um, we probably have to, de- you know, first define the, the scope of what the problem is and where relief can be granted. And then I think you could see some some uh, incremental changes you you suggest.
0: Yeah, with the BSA bit, I, you know, I've been making that argument with a lot of our guys internally that there's no way you see any easing there. And, and and that's important because th- there's been a handful of surveys, including ones we put out, uh, where bankers say that BSA AML is responsible for something like 50% of their compliance costs. So it's, it's a big, big figure. And the one thing I, I continually hear from the BSA experts is that uh, they're asking banks to be the cops, but it's really helping fight the war on terror, so to speak. So it seems like there there's unlikely any easing there. But it, it does also seem, that, to your point, like there might be a little political will, um, uh, even beyond Treasury, uh, to provide a little bit more relief easing for smaller institutions.
1: Yeah, and, and you you see even some agreement on uh, you know one of the one of the Emotional hot buttons of Dodd Frank, the Volcker Rule, you know, and and the proposals to relieve banks under ten billion of Volcker Rule compliance. Um, It's it's that's probably more important um, optically than it is practically, because most banks at that level don't have Volcker Rule issues to begin with. But again, it's it's it evidences at least an attempt to tailor regulation to. Size and complexity, as opposed to just a one rule fit one size fits all. Right, right.
0: You one know, one of the other uh, pieces that came up in the treasury report is is something uh, that we had actually seen in terms of easing in the last uh, two years, and that's uh, proposed changes to the small bank holding company policy statement. Uh, you know, anybody listening doesn't know. Uh, uh, and Jeff, you can explain better than me. I believe that was raised in, in spring of 15, uh, the asset threshold from 500 million to a billion. And effectively that allows, uh, uh, banks to hold more leverage at their whole co, um, and, and downstream funds, uh, and as equity. And, and Treasury's proposing increasing that to 2 billion. Is that right? Is that? Yeah, and, and the,
1: cho- and the Choice Act would increase it actually to 10 billion, which would be consistent with the Treasury's definition of a community bank part part of the the issue there is that is that that's a very very powerful tool for banks to grow and use their you know capital uh, from bank from borrowings from other banks uh, through a holding company and the like it's it has not been used as much as it it could be over the last few years because you also have to demonstrate an ability to repay and so when you had the credit crisis and earnings were in a decline, it was hard to get to the maximum leverage permitted or that could be supported in, in any kind of filings with the Federal Reserve. The part of that change um, that you, you mentioned, from 500 million to a billion, keeps the ratio of banks that are eligible for coverage on an on and asset size to between 80 and 90 percent. That's a lot of banks. Uh, you know, out there, including S&Ls now. Their holding companies are also covered. Um, it was based in part on legislation that was required to fix a problem under the Collins Amendment or Section 171 of the Dodd-Frank Act, where they actually specified the size limit for small bank holding companies. that didn't have to um, comply with the consolidated uh, capital requirements of that act, um, which so they passed uh, Public Law 113-250 at the end of 2014. The Fed followed up in 2015 with a new rule. But the Act also statutorily engrafted the qualitative factors that the Fed had adopted in 2006 as so a small policy whole, uh, statement, including not engaged in significant non-banking activities, no significant off-balance sheet activities, including securitization and asset management, and no material amount of debt or equity securities outstanding other than trust-preferred that are registered with the SEC. So as you go up the scale and as you've seen bank stocks increase in value over the last year or two, there are a lot of banks that have SEC-registered equity securities, and that's sort of an all-or-none proposition generally. If your common stock is registered, all your common stock is registered. So um, the qualitative factors are something that can be dealt with to a certain extent by Federal Reserve Interpretation, which has been generally liberal. They say the qualitative factors don't, haven't restricted community banks in particular under the policy statement. But now we've got this legislation so that any increase also ha, might want to consider in asset size should also consider the qualitative factors because the bigger the banks get up the scale, the um, more those qualitative factors become a limiting factor
0: right right and, and as it stands now, you know you talked about this a uh, a a little bit uh it, the fact that it covers so many institutions if if it were increased, I mean would we see that much of a dramatic change uh in terms of the operating environment? we've seen some guys take advantage of the five hundred to to a, a billion increase and and raise some debt and and basically be able to, to raise much more cost-effective capital.
1: Mm-hmm. But,
0: you know, how many – it's it's a number of institutions that would be added, but how much could that change sort of the competitive landscape, you think?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, last year there was a, a bill, H.R. 3791, that would have raised the limit from $1 billion to $5 billion. And that's, uh, they said, and the sponsors on that one said that that would increase the number of banks covered – by 400. Um, again, it, that didn't take into account, I don't think, the qualitative standards. Um, partially, the, the Fed has theory has been that larger banks that are SEC registered have more complexity and therefore don't need the policy statement and or they have access to capital. But the primary reason is complexity. I think you, you have a, where you have a system that smaller banks, even though they have SEC registered securities, may or may not have access to the capital markets like larger institutions. And I, I think that those institutions should have the benefit of the small bank holding company policy as well because they need every alternative that they can in order to grow. And part of this is, is also you know, what areas are served by those banks? And I think the Treasury report was really good on that. Um, in 90% of the ag business and 24% of their um – I'm sorry, 43% of all small business loans were made by these community institutions. So if you allocate capital and make it more difficult – or if you make it easier, that's going to have a, heart, uh, a an adverse or positive effect on a couple of big sectors of our economy.
0: Right. And, and you also, I mean, you're, you're, you're not only helping support the local economies, but, I mean, you're basic, by increasing access to capital, when there is another downturn, uh, uh, perhaps you might see fewer of these guys, uh, you know, end up on receivership. Uh, it, who who couldn't get access to capital, but you know you touched on something that that is another piece I want to talk about, and, and that's community need. Uh, and and to me, I, I think de novos when I think of that because I hear that's the the biggest biggest sort of hurdle that any proposed de novo needs uh, to meet right now in terms of getting approval. Uh, so it seems like the, you know you're saying Treasury recognizes that that community banks for filling a community need that isn't there by the bigger guys. Do you think regs are, are warming up to the NOVOs? So I know that the FDIC has put out um, a number of statements on on, on the issue and is trying to seem like they're fostering more applications. Um, but w- what's your general sense there?
1: Well, I think there's some political and, and economic and business pressure on them to do that. Um, at times – The uh, FDIC has been quoted publicly as saying there are no de novos because the Fed is keeping interest rates low and it's hard to make a profit. Um, And and to a certain extent, that's right. Also, I think it's natural that the agency charged with insuring deposits takes a conservative view after their experience in the uh, credit crisis, especially where a, a disproportionate number of banks that failed were, had been chartered within five years prior to their their uh failure. Part of that was due to over concentration in broker deposits and uh construction and other, you know, speculative real estate lending. Um, but having said that, I, I think a a reasonable approach to looking at, at, at new charters is appropriate. I think part of it is you have to have a good business plan. You have to figure out as organizers what's going to distinguish a de novo from the other competition and how can you serve the market better. It's a basic business planning exercise. This the second is is getting really good people. I think people more than ever are critical to it. I think there's an opportunity using technology and creative business plans where you can attack markets more cost effectively than people with legacy systems potentially. But you have to identify that need. I think part of the problem, and the has done a great job of analyzing you know, FinTech and the like, and you don't have to be a FinTech company to have a de novo bank that works. You, have, you can form a de novo bank that's a traditional bank with different electronic delivery systems that are tailored to your target markets. And, and I think that's that's important. Again, cybersecurity and data privacy and all that is more is heightened in today's environment. But that's part of the issue. I think the other thing is is regulation have say, have created a barrier to entry. You need to be of a certain size to be able to absorb the compliance, the AML, BSA, and other cost of running a bank today. And so when you see the de novo banks where Maybe in today's environment, 25 to 30 million of of capital is is probably the minimum. That's only going to get you to an institution of about 300 million in assets. Is that big enough to be profitable? So again, planning is is important to attract investors. Um, Part of this idea of reducing regulation and tailoring it to complexity as opposed to mere size should help the smaller banks, including De novos, compete better and become more profitable. Um, the other thing you see is in the fintech charters. There are two of them out there right now. There's one state, it's Utah Industrial Loan, and then there's another that's been uh, sent to the Comptroller of the Currency. And each one of those are looking at between 150 and 200 million of capital. So you're going to look at at bigger capital raises on on some of the um, new entrance to the industry from the fintech space.
0: So billion or two billion in assets there. I mean that that's a lot bigger than what we saw, and and a far cry from um, you know what you talked about. A lot of the explosion of the novos we saw, including in your market. For those who don't know, Chip, Chip is in Atlanta. Um, uh, you know that that was the case of where regulators didn't want to see it, but um, but the guys coming now are a lot bigger. That's interesting. Uh, do you think there's investor appetite for for i mean is is there enough of an investor base for that kind of thing if you can come with with the right idea
1: i think there is i think the the idea is is one that's important is is, is the concept workable the old idea that if you form a bank customers will come profits will come and somebody will buy you out in 5 to 6 years is no longer exists i mean i think De novo, bank investors need to be patient long-term investors generally. Um, maybe some technologies will grow faster than others, but the banking system in general grows with the economy, and part of the regulatory concern expressed in the Treasury report, the Choice Act, and other studies done by the GAO and others shows that you know economic growth is the driver of bank growth, and that only makes sense. Um, and if you're at a 2% growth rate, it's a very different opportunity than if you were at 3%. I think the other thing that's out there that is a legislative matter but could really help all banks um, would be, you know, ta- you know, corporate tax cuts. Um, it's amazing you, you now have credit unions with almost uh, 50% the size and aggregate of community banks. Um, there's been a, an incredible growth in credit unions. They're serving needs, but they're also doing it without the taxes that they're, you know, their are similarly sized community banks face.
0: And some of the work we've done to that point, I mean, you could see that the boost in profitability, even with, you know, a 10 to 15 percent cut in, in corporate taxes, all of a sudden the ROAs and ROEs are there. Uh, it's it, it, it sort of, you know, we've kind of made the case that it puts to bed the, uh, the argument of can the industry earn this cost of capital? So it would it would clearly provide a big boost and and likely would think greater investor appetite.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I think I think that's there. I think some of the other efforts that the Treasury and others are looking at is how do we have a, a system of banking in the US which is a dual banking system of state and federally chartered institutions that we're you know, there's there's 6,000 banks, roughly, and and mo, you know the biggest numbers are in the community size space, and you know, but that are subject to international capital standards that apply to systems that are generally much more concentrated with a very limited number of large banks in the system. So again, it, part of the issue is looking at how we tailor our regulation consistent with size, or not size so much, but complexity and risk, but also consistent with international norms without taking on Basel III standards and applying those to banks that are, to a banking system that's incredibly different in terms of its distribution of, of banks in terms of size and risk and complexity. Without doubt.
0: Well, I I think that's all the time we have today, but thanks so much, Chip, uh, for an insightful discussion.
1: Thanks, Nathan. It was a pleasure.